Hey guys, welcome back. Thank you so much for tuning in to another uh, episode of Real Queers. Uh, today we have the usual cast of myself and Mandy. Hi! And as far as anything goes, today we are covering The Craft, which was the 1996 classic from Andrew Fleming, who was produced by Columbia Pictures and Red Wagon Entertainment. Um, just awards real quick uh did get one win seven noms but the only win was an mtv movie award but it was for the best fight between balk and toony which was just it was a great fight um oh yeah the noms were for other things like saturn awards and fangoria chainsaw awards so it was really nothing big but still did pretty okay yeah um in the box office uh the budget was 15 million and uh, it was only distributed in the U.S. and Canada, so it is a relatively small gross. Uh, but they did make a profit coming in at a total of $24,819,936 with an opening weekend of $6,710,995. Uh, for the actors and roles... Uh, Normally, this wouldn't be our first point, but we both forgot that Skeet Ulrich was in this <laughs> and uh, had, like, you know, many fan outs uh, in sync. He played Chris Ho Hooker. Uh, Sarah Bailey was played by Robin Tooney. Nancy Downs was played by Feruza Balk. Bonnie Harper by Nev Campbell. Rochelle Zimmerman by Rachel True. Laura Lizzie by Christine Taylor. And uh, Lirio, the esoteric shopkeeper, for those who, uh, like us, do not pay very good attention to names, uh, played by Assumpta Serna. Now, before we do go any further, we would like to remind anyone tuning in that we are not professionals in the mental health or social work fields, but because of personal experiences and some education, uh, we are passionate about these topics, but we are not licensed professionals of any kind. Uh, the intent of this and similar episodes is to bring awareness to topics that we do realize affect mental health. So this is all just for entertainment purposes only. Um, the topics important to us within this film and that will be discussed at length do include feminism, morality and practice, personal accountability, racism, mental health, uh, potential impacts of trauma on a person's worldview, and of course their representation of witchcraft from a seemingly judeo-christian lens yeah so uh you know within that same vein the potential triggers and major talking points in this particular episode include suicidal ideation and attempts uh depression racism sexual assault poor self-esteem domestic abuse self-harm and religion for those of us who have uh, been burned <laughs> yeah so, my introduction uh, to this movie was in ninth grade, uh, just kind of randomly at a sleepover, not even from the beginning. Uh, my friends and I turned it into kind of an inside joke, and until preparing for this episode with Mandy, the only other times I've watched it were also with those friends. So, this rewatch was an experience for a number of reasons. Uh, the primary reason is that at the time of my first viewing, I was still staunchly Southern Baptist like my family. Uh, since then, I have embarked in a dedicated and complex journey of self-discovery and spiritual exploration. These days, I most accurately call myself a druid, but most often refer to myself as a witch for ease of conversation. For me, it's a totally different experience. For me, I've pretty much loved this movie since middle school like besides being obsessed with horror and like gothic vibes from a young age i grew up in private catholic schools from like kindergarten through high school so like their high school reminded me very much of my life growing up from the entitled assholes to the uniforms and i can remember how much of an impact this movie had on me when I first saw it and I must have watched it dozens of times yearning for something like magic to make me feel more empowered and confident in what could be a really shitty environment sometimes um, 
as well as having a visible chronic illness like seizures, let alone being neurodivergent or changing schools every few years, meant I was always felt like, like an outsider, a nerd, a loser, whatever term you want to use there. Uh, so seeing the confidence and empowerment and magic in this movie, I won't deny that it probably inspired some of my earliest interests in like Wicca, magic, witchcraft, all that as a kid. But as far as I go these days, though, I'm more of an atheist and I'm not much of a spiritual person either. But I do still have a soft spot for this movie regardless. It's just it's such a fun movie. And it's it's classic at this point. It's we are the weirdos, oh, mister. Yeah. <laughs> we are the weirdos, mister. Um, anyway, enough about us. Uh, and we'll get into the meat of this film in a moment. But first, we do have a quick word about our sponsor because we are finally cool enough for a sponsor. Thank you for sticking by us through that. Uh, we're going to get into the meat of it now. Um, as much as this film is a tale of witchcraft and moral accountability, it also strongly evokes the spirit of feminism throughout the ages. From Charles Fourier coining the term in 1837, suffragettes making huge strides in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the liberation movement in the 60s, to the third wave focus on individuality and diversity in 1992, which was just a few hand, just a handful of years before uh, this film was made, there is a rich history of non-normative female empowerment driving the movement. The Christian Church persecution of all things pagan aided and encouraged the oppression of female autonomy and the cultures they wanted to eradicate. Women were traditionally the primary healers and beer brewers of communities. Their iconic aesthetic tools and companions for those roles were purposefully mislabeled by men who wanted to dominate their lucrative fields as telltale signs of witchcraft. The deconstruction of these barriers to uh, the fields is an ongoing struggle. The deconstruction of barriers to these fields is an ongoing struggle, but progress in women-led research has proved a lot of the concepts within matriarchal oral tradition and secret passed down or hidden journals to be scientifically sound. And a lot of the initial draw into witchcraft for women throughout the various feminist waves can be attributed to its innate inclusivity, its empowerment, the companionship, the sexual freedom, like just freedom in general to be yourself and all that. And we can see that because the girls' coven was founded to bring them a safe haven and be like a self-rescue for very similar reasons, which are going to be central to today's discussion. Um, like how early, very on, um, Nancy, Bonnie, and Rochelle are referred to as the Bitches of Eastwick, which is clearly a direct reference to the 1987 film Witches of Eastwick, which, shout out. Um, and that's just one very early example um, they also face hurdles such as sexism, consent violations, racism, toxic friendships, poor mental health, and the allure of new power. Yeah, one of the biggest justifications for oppression of women has been Judeo-Christian morality, but the craft deftly asserts that Christianity does not hold a monopoly on morality and narratively proves that personal accountability must be observed at all times to maintain balance whether pursuing justice or self-improvement. To introduce this theme, the story provides Chris as a mascot of the toxic patriarchy the girls are trying to rise above. God, Chris. Like, you just yeah. you see it from the way they like talk about girls and girlfriends. And a lot of it is like that basic like jock stuff, like, come watch my game. Um, yeah. or his friends making you know, jokes and... about him being whipped. Like... It's... Right, and and then, you know, on the first date, which even appears to just be kind of a, a study date, there's the expectation of sexual favors at the end, yeah. which, you know, number one, gross, don't be like that. Yeah. Number two, like, that's really early for either of you to be thinking about doing anything together. And they were, like, hanging out with other people and, like, on a rooftop, and he's trying to, like get some and it's just like you're you're surprised she said no like right whatever but and after sarah rejects his advances he does proceed to further violate her trust by spreading lies about their fictional encounter which she only finds out about this that he's been spreading lies and 
bragging about having slept with her and like his whole braggy history because the trio approach her in concern. Like Nancy disclosed to her that given her history with him, this just seemed like a pattern for Chris. Yeah. And, you know, as awful that it, that, as that is, it's not that the girls are entirely innocent in regards to consent violations throughout the film. They do perform a spell that strips them of the ability to consent. And, you know, we see this in, like, drastic changes in behavior from one day to the next. It starts out where he's just, like, they do their little spell and start, and Sarah's like, I, I just want him to like me or love me or whatever. And then it comes back in, and, like, the next day, and we see him, like, following her around, being very apologetic, carrying her book, sitting with her, and it, it's, then it slowly does start to escalate into, like, he's stalking her at her house, and, like, her mm -hmm. dad's having to tell him to, like, get the fuck out of here, kid. And then he starts talking about a yeah. family and a life together, and it, it just, it, it, it escalates very quickly. Oh, yeah, and, and not only, like, just escalating in how much he's harassing her, but he also talks about not being able to, you know, eat or sleep because of how obsessed he is with her. And, you know, while normally we would have to consider that that, you know, might just be teenage exaggeration, the, the magic involved and the speed with which he flipped definitely seems to indicate that that is 100% genuine. Yeah. It's scary stuff. Poor Chris. As much as I hate to say that, but, like, it's... We know, like, he... he that wasn't something he was wanting. But that escalation did lead directly to Chris's attempted rape of Sarah, which, due to the magic's influence, we really can't consider either of them anything but victims. Like, her intent was never to violate, and his sleaziness doesn't have a history of, like, that level of, like, assault or violation. And, like, if you look in the scene, like, you can see that he looks as, like, upset as she does. Mm hmm Nancy, however, was entirely purposeful in her attempted rape of Chris, and, like, she used his drunkenness and his obsession with Sarah to get him alone in a closed bedroom, like... Yeah, that's a like whole, it, it. Yeah, it it's a whole like just whole different handbasket, you know, like, first of all, just tricking someone to do something because they're drunk. That in itself is a violation. But to then try to seduce him and then use a glamour to look like the girl that you have helped make him magically obsessed with. And let's so also, that you can... Yeah, and let's be clear, like, she, he, like, very much, very clearly told her no multiple times and pushed her off of him before she put on oh, that yeah. glamour. Like, so there was a very clear no. She crossed a lot of lines, and then, like, Sarah comes in and suddenly... Crossing sexual consent violations uh, and, like, just full-blown assault is, is not enough for her. She throws him magically out a window to his death. Poor Chris. Which is just, you know, <sighs> while attempted rape and murder are definitely extremes, Nancy's decision to take personal ownership of Sarah's pain and use it to fuel and justify her, ho her own harmful actions is fairly common within toxic friendships and that's definitely how i would describe the coven oh yeah by and large it the, the coven is supposedly a safe haven built built on perfect love and perfect trust uh and we do see several scenes of them sharing their secrets with each other uh, crying with and for one another, as well as just having some casual fun. However, there's a sense from the beginning that not everything is even or smooth within their dynamic. No, definitely not. Like, you, you can tell it, like, Bonnie, Nancy, and Rochelle are, like, casually mean to each other. And Sarah, from the beginning, 
Um, we see them making nasty comments, like references to weight, societal status, and other known insecurities. Like, they take care of each other. They're friends with each other, but they are not ha and like having healthy relationships with each other. It's no purely like circumstantial friendship, just based upon their choices. Like you can tell. Mm -hmm. Um, but as the story goes on, the original trio's behavior considerably worsens. Like Sarah is gaslit every time she tries to point that out. And even, or especially when she points out that their treatment of each other has grown sharper. And we'll have more examples of barbs they throw at one another later in the episode. Um, the only thing that seems to thankfully have been out of line in this movie, even for Nancy, with her toxicity towards each other, was Rochelle's main struggle in the film, which was overt racism. Yeah, so the, the character of Laura Lizzie uh, persistently bullies Rochelle and that bullying reveals itself to be racist and drive, even when, you know, it, it's not overtly racist. Like, she yells shark just before Rochelle is about to dive so that she does poorly. And there's just a lot of, like, general indistinct mockery. Um, but so far as, like, overt bigotry goes, she does, away from the ears of you know, faculty describe R Rochelle's hair as nappy and mistakable for pubic hairs just before using an outdated slur that, while not the hard R, still made us uncomfortable for Rochelle as a character as well as both Rachel True and Christine Taylor, the actors for those characters. Mm -hmm. We had to pause the movie to process that whole scene and cringe and also look up that word because it yeah. was clearly related to the hard r but not it. it it was off we we weren't quite sure exactly what it was supposed to mean we actually did have to look it up yeah um, but as far as it goes after we kind of realize like rochelle's reaction was definitely understated and very resigned like she clearly deals with it from more than just laura which honestly isn't unsurprising because a black girl attending a predominantly white Catholic school in the mid-90s definitely would have faced at least subverted racism regularly. But, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but surprisingly, th this movie just really didn't pull any punches when it came to acknowledging trauma, such as the racism we have discussed, um, that a lot of people experience but often goes unspoken. Um while we have given the film credit for acknowledging the racism Rochelle would have faced and Rachel True's honest delivery of dejected resignation, we are disheartened at the lack of depth in her character's art compared to the others. Um, but we do want to focus a little bit on like the mental health of this. And because we've already focused on Rochelle's trauma separately, the only character arc they gave to her, which is... It, mm, We'd prefer yeah. to just continue by discussing each of the other girls' battles individually. And we want to start with Sarah. Yeah. If discussion of suicide and self-harm are triggering to you, please skip forward to timestamp here. Record this in post. Very early in the film, the trio draw attention to Sarah's scarred wrists and learned that she uh, self-harmed as part of a suicide attempt prior to moving to the area. During this interaction, we get an interesting glimpse at how each of them views self-harm in general. Uh, Bonnie, for one, is nearly entranced, mentioning with a sort of reverence that she even did it the right way, uh, which definitely leads you to think that she's at least researched yeah. if not felt strongly enough to do anything with that research uh whereas nancy makes a loud and brusque joke calling it punk rock before trying to propel the group back into action and it definitely seems really avoidant possibly as a coping mechanism um she understands what's going on in the gravity and she wants to get away from it 
whereas Rochelle entirely fails to recognize any of the gravity of the conversation, uh, you know, proceeding to tease Bonnie for knowing the right way, even when the others clearly want to move past it. And this film does make multiple references to uh, her self-harm and the influences that led up to it. Uh, some of these are more triggering than others, such as the dream sequence that shows the original act. Um, but narratively, Sarah's mental health is intrinsically tied to her magical journey and her growth. We see it in the first example of magic uh, is the prophetic, uh, prophetic, I can't say it, words are hard, <laughs> hallucinations <laughs> of snakes that drive her um, desperation towards the suicide attempt because she was having all of these nightmares and then she wouldn't, she'd wake up and the nightmares wouldn't go away. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I mean, you know, it, that, that would make it difficult for anyone. Like she's not sleeping well, she's seeing things and, you know, she wasn't really being able to find help anywhere. It was just, it just kept happening. Um, and, you know, this is both, um, implied and directly referenced as being part of her magic. And so it's part of why she's initially kind of hesitant to do anything with these girls. Um, and next she also references how her magic is twisted or bad, or it goes against her intent and will. And like the you know, she, thing she, with, she, you know, wishing for things to get quieter and she goes deaf, like little things. Yeah, you know, the, those little things, but, like, it, it definitely, um, she's describing her magic, her power, which is, you know, frequently referenced as being natural rather than learned, like the other girls, as being inherently bad and twisted and out of her control, and I think that's a really strong parallel to you know, just the general way that we tend to, you know, negatively self-talk about ourselves. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's, you know, it's yeah very clear that she's scared of herself and her power and her strength. And mm -hmm. she doesn't know how to control it, which she's a kid. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, and... um. And it, it continues into even, you know, refusing to let her dad touch her after Chris's death. She even says, everything I touch turns to shit. Yeah. And so I don't know how much intent they had in that parallel throughout her story, but it is very strong. Yeah. She definitely still struggles with those feelings. And, mm -hmm. like not knowing how to control it until like towards the end and how to balance and everything like you can see that she she's just terrified of herself yeah yeah and then she's and, terrified uh, of herself affecting everybody else around her right yeah and you know referring to that that terror and her reservations about using the magic to its fullest ex extent um, as well as, as, you know, she attempts to bind the other girls and is unsuccessful several times. Oh, yeah. Uh, Nancy actually tells her that she'd have killed herself years ago if she was as pathetic and weak as Sarah. Which is yeah. just absolutely awful. Oh, yeah. Like, but the, at that point, Nancy was so far off the toxic end, it was... It... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Like, the, the, whole, the whole original trio at that point, are just purposefully reinforcing her inner narrative that she and her magic are intrinsically to blame for all the death around her. And not just the, the, the stuff that happens in the movie, but, like, especially in including her mother's death during her birth. Yeah. It's... And... <sighs> we see a, a yeah. lot of the girls, like, really attacking and not truly understanding her situation either yeah absolutely and in the end she is only able to fully utilize her magic with her intent after she accepts herself her history and her trauma as a singular worthy package 
however, Sarah isn't the only one who battles with self-worth throughout the film. Um, as we learned from a deleted scene, Bonnie received severe wounds in a car as a child. That's where uh, this car is coming from. Yeah. And, you know, from the beginning, we see that that incident left, you know, mental scars as well as the physical. And because of those scars, she, you know, has definitely developed this obsession with beauty that is seemingly reinforced by her mother. Oh, yeah, definitely. You can definitely tell that her entirety of, like, her self-esteem and self-worth is tied to her physical appearance. Like, everything from, like, the way she dresses to the way she holds herself to the way she keeps her hair. Like, you can tell that she doesn't feel beautiful, so she doesn't seem to put effort into her body, her dress, her face, any of it. Um and later yeah, on the, the like, only... to the point of gene therapy it's just like you see early in the beginning with the multiple needles and it's just like you want to cry for her like you you do yeah and you know they they call it like minimally invasive but minimally potentially invasive. excruciating yeah and it's like i'm sorry if it's if it's excruciating uh then it's not minimally invasive like, and to me, it looks almost like a tattoo machine. Like as far as like that constant needle pricking is, is what it reminded me of. And like I know how pa like painful tattoos can be, and that's only like towards like the top layer of skin. And I don't think they were just touching that top layer. No, definitely not. They were definitely going way deeper, and those also seemed like bigger needles um, than you actually see in a tattoo machine. Like these were, these were big old honkers with tiny gauge numbers. Let me tell you. Um, so it would take just... a long time to cover the surface area that she had to work with. Oh yeah, because those are large scars. So oh, yeah. it, it's it like just most of her back. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been awful. Yeah. And like there's there's so, numbing, you know... no nothing. It was just she just had to sit and like almost immediately start screaming and you know that was like only like two seconds into what would have been hours of surgery or in right. non-invasive yeah. procedure non-invasive procedure <laughs> yeah experimental non-invasive procedure so it just with with her mother being so willing to just jump into this treatment you know i I, I can't help but assume that her mom has been the primary driver for her developing this, you know, image of her own self-worth as tied to her appearance. And even if it wasn't um, like her mother directly being like, no, you're, you're not pretty, like, it, it was still like her mother wasn't being like, no, honey, you are beautiful. The scars just happen to be part of your body. Like, there was a clear something was missing yeah yeah like it it's uh it, it's just it's awful and like we see her desperately praying for her scars to be taken away um and you know nancy is like uh performing some kind of like i assume energy work on her back um you know just trying to help and she's like both heartbroken and seemingly like disgusted and horrified and it, it's visually in her body language and in her face you know it's kind of like equal it is is that revulsion and that broken heart and you know this is her best friend you know like she clearly um, cares for her, and she knows how much it bothers her, but I, at the same time, you can tell she's just kind of like, I don't feel like you need this as much as you think you do. Yeah. Like, it's... Yeah. Like, the scars but... are there, but they're not they're not that bad, and, like, they're understandable, like... Right, yeah. There's and no like, reason to all... put yourself through all this torture for it. Exactly. Like... It, it's not, you know, along her arms, it's not on her face, it's, like, it's her back. Yeah, which, I mean, I, I can get it, like, during the summer or bikini season, that might affect your confidence, but... 
I don't know. Yeah. To me, it's it... not something that would be like frequently or easily seen by others, which is why I think the primary drive for her defining her self-worth by it is from within the family. Um, but, you know, we see a complete and utter shift in personality and confidence after her scars come off, which, by the way, they come off like dried glue. Yeah, like, you know, legit just, just peels peeled. off like a face mask, and it, it's partially like it, satisfying and partially strange. <laughs> yeah, like it, we get what they were going for, but it has a really weird effect. Um, but and you know, you just side note just... real quick that poor doctor who thought that they just cured some magical like skin graft thing, and she's like, "Oh my god, this is a miracle! We can use this on other people!" And she will never get that result again. <laughs> yep, never. <laughs> like it, it that poor doctor is just gonna be like, "What the fuck?" Yeah. But um, yeah, but like it, you know, the the confidence that starts out. Um, which, by the way, it's not just, like, you know, casual, hey, guys, I did my hair today. It, she, she comes back from that treatment with a new wardrobe. In the middle of class. With a new wardrobe. She's, like, done a hair mask, gotten her hair blown. She has makeup for the first time. It's like skirt all short. The, the sexy little overalls and, like, white shirt thing going on. Like... Yeah, it's like, like okay. It, she went from like zero to ten. Yeah. Overnight, essentially. Which, in, you, if you feel confident and hot in that, rock on. Yeah. But it but, got a little toxic, and she took it a little yeah. overboard. Like she, she, she got too excited and like too into the fact that she is now. She viewed herself as the epitome of beauty for her. And then it just kind of made her ugly mm -hmm. on the inside. Yeah. But. And Sarah tries to point that out and Bonnie just kind of like, what are you talking about? Yeah. No, there's jealous. Now, we do see that uh, Nancy also defines self-worth by outward appearances and newfound power, not just Bonnie. Um, though obviously the magical powers certainly play a big part in her spiral, Nancy's struggle uh, was with financial status and is a clear and primary driver throughout the film for Nancy and her behavior and attitude. Um, for those of you who have never attended a private religious school, like... Unlike us. Unlike us. Ugh. The the social pressure of your parents' financial status and the clout they have can directly impact your ability to gain respect or even have friends within these kinds of schools. Like these are small schools. It is a very small classes. Like it's like small town. Everybody knows everybody. Tight knit, and they're all up in each other's business. And it's all judged based on money and status. Like it's it's awful. And, like, while some of this can be somewhat true in public schools, private schools just tend to, like, apply a, for a false morality and, like, have, like, misplaced emphasis on wealth in order to justify, like, their systemic elitism and classist views. And it's just, it's a whole nother world there. They, they live in their yeah. own special bubble. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and that emphasis that they place is not just like misguided but it's specifically and purposefully misinterpreted from the bible to knowingly justify these views that if they were following their own dogma would not actually you know come to being um but Nancy's experience clearly aligns with this because the general view and discussion around her, uh, both from, you know, unfriendlies within the school, be they faculty or other students, as well as her supposed best friends and, like, chosen sisters, all point to long-term uh, ostracization due to financial standing or lack thereof. 
when the other girls were trying to figure out why she was so upset and absolutely losing her shit about her manifestation not working when, you know, all three of theirs did, uh, at least to some extent, Rochelle said, I don't know, I think she just wants... I think she doesn't want to be white trash anymore or something. And I told her, you're white, honey. Just deal with it. And while this comes across initially as a harsh indication that, like, she thinks Nancy will be trashed no matter what, I think it's important to note that Rochelle's ostracization comes from race. And that the full depths of Nancy's home life seem to be hidden from her friends. So, while they sympathize with her situation, they aren't able to truly comprehend and therefore empathize with the situation. Yeah. Which, like, and, you see, like, the textbook abuse and neglect in Nancy's home life, like, throughout a good chunk of that movie, which can lead to stuff like despair, panic, resignation. Like, Nancy's whole attitude. Oh, yeah. Like, you see exactly, like, yeah. her mother, who, like, doesn't stand up for herself or for Nancy, and, like, has the, like, abusive, like, alcoholic stepfather or mother's boyfriend or whatever. Yeah, like, whatever it, he is. Yeah, like, it's yeah, just and, clearly and... not a good home situation. It, it's clearly, like, a small trailer that seems to be out in the middle of nowhere. Like, the power mm -hmm. easily goes out during a storm, like. And... Right, and, like, the one time that you see her mother, um, you know, take a stand against him is when she notices that other people near them still have power and they don't, and there's this, you know, very clear sense that they frequently struggle with money and that he seems to be the primary cause for that struggle, at least in her mother's mind. And, you know, his response to that stress is just to start making really lewd comments about, you know, her mother and about how she was conceived. And it's just, yeah. it's it's gross and uncomfortable. And, like, yeah. if he's making those comments about her conception, there could be all sorts of other things tied to that. Like, it's... That's a slippery, slippery it, slope. It, yeah, it's, it's, it's clearly just a very toxic bad home life yeah and then you know in a different part of the movie like um her mom like you know it gently you know smacks him on the shoulder and not even a smack like it's you know the the equivalent of like cats papping each other when they're when they're playing um you know and he goes off is threatening uh, Nancy's mom with death if she ever lays a hand on him again and Nancy goes into a full-blown panic attack which is um, understandable you know, oh yeah like it, if you didn't go into a full-blown panic attack in that situation like you'd be way too dissociated to, to notice anything yeah but you know as it goes in the in the film she ends up like having kind of an explosion of her magic something shorts out behind her there's a house fire and you know shortly after presumably from like the rapid whiplash of his emotions and being drunk he has a heart attack and dies probably nothing to do with nancy at all and oh probably it, nothing at all nothing at all because like it's not like she had just gotten like the full power of manon at that point or you know yeah. going through a full fit of rage because her mother's being abused and she's just finally fucking had enough nah, nah yeah no it's nah. definitely definitely none of that it's entirely natural causes yes yes 100%. you know which is very important <laughs> <sighs> Now, in the aftermath of his death, they do find out that he has a life insurance policy they didn't know about. Somehow. Magically. magically. And Nancy suddenly skyrockets from absolute poverty to, like, comfortable middle class. Um, they say the policy was for 175000 which was in 1996, which is approximately 272000 almost 500 uh, in today's money. Which they... 
can rent a very nice condo with. They splurge on money on ridiculous material items, clothes, a brand new car. Like this treatment and mindset toward financial power directly parallels with Nancy's mindset towards uh, and relationship with magical power as well, uh, which we'll get into shortly. Um, but first, we do have a few notes about magical representation as a whole within the craft. Obviously, we've touched on bits here and there throughout our different topics, but there's a lot of history and practice that are confusingly braided with creative liberties that don't always make sense to the casual observer. Like, uh, pretty sure we stopped the film multiple times so we could, like, try to figure out what what magic are they talking about here because it, it's clearly like an amalgamation of like a whole lot oh yeah yeah <laughs> it, it, and if you're interested in a full breakdown of rituals and workings that we see in detail during the film compared to paganism both old and new uh, head over to our website jadedphoenix.studio for a companion essay with personal anecdotes uh, and examples of real-world practice uh, written by me. For the podcast itself, though, we can highlight a couple of interesting things that make absolutely no sense uh, or produce really cool results, but we're mostly going to focus on the narrative effects of the girl's craft. Uh, Manon, the trio's deity, is complete fiction created for the film. Uh, which, you know, we can respect that because it gave them a lot more flexibility and creative liberty without risking misrepresentation or vilification of a deity that people actually worship. And by extent, vilification of that deity's worshipers. Yeah. Um, however, it also leads to some really out there theistic blending, <laughs> like the sky-clad witches dancing around a tree and a bull's head trying to summon angels, of all things, on the initiation page, which was a solid 45 minutes of pause, and, yeah. uh... It, it was very entertaining, yeah. mostly for me, by the way, because, uh... It was very entertaining. really upset about that page. <laughs> yes. It was very entertaining exclusively for you. For me, it rose my blood pressure. Um, but... <laughs> Regardless of that, uh, Manon is older than God because humans created God, and he's like if God and the devil were combined, or at least that's how Nancy describes him. Which, I think that last bit is a really weird way of trying to describe a trickster deity. Um, watching, you know, baby witches and, like, staunch love and lighters get bent out of shape on witch talk, trying to warn people against tricksters like, uh... Loki, or Hermes, or uh, Coyote, Crow, Maui, Prometheus, or even uh, the Monkey King. Um, it, trying to, to warn people that, that those deities are invalid and shouldn't be worshipped is as hilarious sometimes as it is just completely sad. And frankly, a lot of that mindset is due to the whitewashing inherent to most pagan discourse today. Uh, the archetype of a trickster is heavily prominent in BIPOC theism, especially compared to European dogmas. And I think that there's likely a direct correlation between not vilifying tricksters and the inclusivity, identification, and sexual freedoms within many of those cultures. So it's oddly refreshing to see Manon presented as a deity who will allow you to do a lot of harm, but will also deal back damage for misuse of the power he bestows. Oh, and, uh, oh, does that power get abused? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it isn't, like, entirely surprising, given that Manon's power is described as seductive and enthralling from the start. Uh, in fact, Sarah is wary based on their descriptions and ends up being mocked for being scared. Honestly, though, her reaction is pretty understandable. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of indication that you lose yourself and your control over to Manon's will. It brings to mind the cultish depictions of being filled with the Holy Spirit that leads to, you know, speaking in tongues and trusting you won't get bit by an angry venomous snake. She is right to be wary and want to take it slow with a bit more research. 
just like even if you are a Christian, you are right to, uh, you know, be wary and want to take it slow when you have someone talking about God's going to protect you from this poisonous snake that he's explicitly given us ways to know to avoid. Or, you know, not getting vaccinated. All of those very dangerous things have a clear parallel here. So at first, only Sarah seems to notice or care that their workings are not coming into being quite the way they envisioned. She attempts it to bring uh, attempts to bring it to their attention a number of times. Uh, but the most noteworthy is the scene in the car when she calls Bonnie out for becoming a bitch since gaining her beauty. And obviously, no one listens to her then either, but that's like the time that she tries the hardest to drive yeah. that point home. Yeah, but it, it's... We did at least get the girls to come around a little bit. Like, we do see, like, Rochelle's light bulb moment, for example, of, like, oh, this is what Sarah meant, is we see that moment of regret for Rochelle when she finds Laura Lizzie having, like, a complete breakdown in the shower, like, nearly ball, and, like, just, like, why won't it stop falling out? And, like, she... You can see Rochelle, like, backing out of the showers, just like, oh, my God. This, this, I did not mean for this to go this far. Mm -hmm. Like, and yeah. it brings up the whole question of, like, do you, do you feel sorry for the racist? But at the same time, it's just kind of like, this is like hard to watch, cruel. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it, it, I honestly, like, the, I don't think I would love this movie as much as I do if Rochelle didn't have that moment of, oh, shit. Because, like, yeah, in general, no, I'm not going to have sympathy for the racist. Um, but also, like, this, this takes it to kind of a different level because as it continues, it starts to not just the hairs falling out, she's going bald, but it also looks painful like parts of it look kind of like an open wound yeah it, and it looks very unhealthy and like nearly cancerous almost like it's awful yeah and like it's you, it's you can tell like she intended it to just be like let's just let a little bit of her hair fall out and she was expecting it to be probably like oh this will just happen for a day or two or it'll just be like a little bit of it and then it'll run its course she didn't realize it was just going to keep going yeah yeah and like it's, seeing somebody having a full mental breakdown because their 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 body seems to be falling apart or at least their hair for no reason like it's not yeah. cancer or anything that would seriously cause that loss it's just there, there's nothing yeah um and you know there's also a discussion with Lirio uh in in her shop uh, about not being able to reverse things and receiving threefold the reapings of what they've sown and that conversation is kind of uh reflected uh you know pun fully intended <laughs> in uh the mirror scene near the end of the film where Sarah is kind of defending herself and um, shows uh, a warning to Bonnie and Rochelle in which they see themselves, uh, you know, balding and fully scarred. Like, Bonnie sees her face completely covered in scars rather than just her back. And Rochelle sees the balding and, like, damage that... Yeah. You know, she's like, been almost equivalent to Laura Lizzie's hair from the shower. Like, just hardly any hair there. And, like, yeah. now, granted, it was just in the mirror. It was just a, a glamour, like, not even physically on the girls themselves, just seeing it in the reflection of the mirror. But it was still enough to, like, totally rattle them and terrify them into, oh, God, this is what Sarah meant. <laughs> everyone that nancy is able to get the results they saw it either from the initial manifestations or through secondary rituals the girls turned to a complex ritual which was invoking the spirit um, which involves the capture and use though not sacrifice of four creatures that symbolize each part of the girls part of the circle um 
The invocation seems to call forth a nasty thunderstorm, driving them to stay in a beachy cave overnight. Um, now, in the morning, however, Nancy, who is drunk with power at this point, we see her walking back towards the beach from from the top of the water in the ocean. Like, like part Jesus parallel walking across the water here kind of going on. Um, like legit walk, walking on the water. Um, and then shortly after reuniting, they move down the beach to investigate like some commotion. Like they hear noises and stuff going on. And they, so of course they go like, what's, what's going on? That's a lot of noise. And that's where they find a string of dead sharks along the beach, like easily like 20 plus sharks laying dead down what seems to be like a mile of beach. Yeah, yeah, and like she, she immediately like runs to them, and at first Nancy you does, expect her to be yeah, Nancy, Nancy yeah, <laughs> um, and you expect her to be you know like horrified and like to to start you know crying or something for them, but no, that's not where they're going with this. She no. declares them beautiful and starts screaming into the sky. These are my gift. I can feel you in me. Which, which for some reason, oh does not draw any attention. No. Um, like, somebody on that beach would have noticed this this girl just being excited about this. But, like, I, I have issues with that scene. It's, like, one of the, the scenes that I truly have issues with. And I'm not even, like, a witch or into, like, witchcraft at all at this point in my life. And it's still, to me, it pisses me off because... Why on earth, if, if they if they had like the animals and their ritual, why on earth, if they were blessed with said power, would their their deity need to kill off like two dozen freaking sharks? I, it does not make sense to me, and it, no. it it upsets me, and it was unnecessary animal death, and it it's it's just bizarre. <laughs> It, yeah. it does not it, make sense like it, in like a karmic balance like scale of things. No, the, the the whole discussion throughout the film has been like how it's going to come back personally on you. Um and like, you know, it if animal sacrifice was needed, you had four creatures. Yeah. Like like they should have been the one that, like that would have made sense. But you know, or if we found out that, like, Nancy had done it, you know, to flex her power or something. But no, she's as surprised by it as all of the rest of them. And so it just, it makes it seem like, you know, Monona's this, you know, true devil um and especially since she's calling it his gift to her yeah. you know it it just he it does not seem like sense. a good deity to be worshiping if your intent is yeah. like good and like light and feathery kind of stuff like the don seems right. kind of the person you'd be like working with if you were trying to do some powerhouse level stuff Exactly. Yeah. No and, good and powerhouse level stuff for bad. Like yeah. this is this is a deity that, you know, Voldemort would team up with I is the that. impression that we get, you know. Um but like it it's crazy. And you know given her power drunkenness and everything like that, we do want to make note that um you know, Chris's murder is fueled by the thrall of power that has Nancy in its corruptive clutches. We're not going to go really into any more detail, um, given how much we've already discussed uh, yeah. and explored the consent issues, but, like, yeah, the, the murder side of things, I don't think was, you know, in her, in her capabilities until she just went completely mad with power. Um, she definitely so, did not have good intentions with that. She did not. No. <laughs> uh, Sarah is the first to truly acknowledge and comprehend just how uh, corrupted and twisted Nancy has become. 
when she tries to do something to counteract it and essentially save her friend from herself, the entire trio turn on her. Um, after torturing Sarah from afar with terrifying visions, they turn up at her house, um, and that's when they're all, you know, taunting her with their knowledge of her fears and insecurities and past, and Nancy is straight up promising her death. Yeah. Um, and so she flees upstairs, and, uh, that's when she scares off Bonnie and Rochelle with the mirror trick we mentioned before, um, essentially so that she and Nancy can have their major powers conflict one-on-one. So Nancy begins the conflict on top. Um, Sarah is able to invoke the spirit and commune directly with Manon without getting all Nancy power drunk levels because her intent was, you know, just and pure. Um, and from that moment, we get a visual representation of the film's entire theme of morality in power dynamics and like the responsibility and benefits of using power for good. Um, and we did want to make one quick side note about this conflict, which contains the film's most impressive technical shots, by the way. Yeah. And uh, it is definitely worth watching with a technical eye. Um, we couldn't really find a lot of details about any of the technical shots. Um, we found so cool, but we do remain impressed by the trickery, like Sarah um, hiding and in, in coming out of the mirror, as well as like the clothes decoy and like the magically powered kick that ultimately proved to be Nancy's demise. Like it, it's it's such a cool shot. Like the final conflict in all of its entirety is actually very impressive filmmaking for the 90s. Oh, yeah, it's an amazing sequence that, like, I am so upset that we don't have more information about. Yeah. That would have been nice. Yeah. But all of that does bring us directly into the film's examples of how, like, seduction and corruption can be overcome and power can be used for good. Yeah, um, the that final conflict with Nancy shines a light on all of the differences in their overall use of magic throughout the film. Because hindsight is twenty twenty, right? <laughs> so one of the earliest examples of Sarah's inclination toward balanced use of power is her attempt to reverse the love spell she cast on Chris. Even though Lirio explains that energy once released cannot be called back because... True magic, true magic is neither black nor white because nature is neither black nor white. It is both. And from this, we can infer that intent and motive uh, determine the magic's moral leaning. And while for the most part, Sarah has very, you know, pure intent, trying to make someone who doesn't care for you suddenly be in love is not an entirely moral use of power. Yeah, and it kind of came because she was a little bit pissed at him for the way she treated her. So, like, it, it, it's, it was part revenge, just part being mean. Yeah. Like, and, like, you know, it's a very, very normal, like, high school reaction. But most people don't use magic to do that. Here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but two of the earliest castings that the coven does together um are you know accidentally summoning butterflies while ritualistically forming their coven uh, as well as seeing if they could make the light as a feather stiff as a board trick work you know for real and magically um and those results kind of show what kind of things the girls could have done with pure with truly pure intentions both effects are wholesome and engender safety and trust in their magic. Um, cute which moments. They were cute moments. Um, and again, as a brief side note, the work behind that light as a feather scene is wild and cool. They created their own movie magic with a two-story set with a hydraulic lift to raise Rochelle up using minimal CGI. It, it, it's a really cool scene when you know the tacticals behind it. it. It was a lot of fun. But back to the witchcraft. <laughs> um, after failing to get the girls to see the changes in themselves and the dramatic escalation following Nancy's invocation, Sarah attempts to bind her friend from causing harm to herself or others. Um, it does take 
two more attempts and Manon's help, but she is finally successful at it in that final conflict. Um, the film's overarching message of karmic balance and personal accountability really does pay off nicely in this final scene, as neither Nancy nor the other two girls still have access to their power, though Sarah still rings true and strong. Um, Yay. It is it, I, I love the little tree trick. It, it, you don't yes. have your powers still. She doesn't have her powers. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. Yeah. Um, oh, well. Um, while we do appreciate like all of the acting, the wardrobe, sound design choices, all that in the film, with few exceptions, um, there's not really anything else super noteworthy that we haven't already mentioned thus far. Um, however, we did want to share a few points of trivia before we do say adieu. Yes. Um, so we didn't find anything talking about, um, you know, Nev Campbell or uh, Robin Tooney having, you know, any lingering ties to witchcraft. Um, but Feruza Balk, while making it clear that she is not a practitioner, um, actually purchased Pam Pipe's uh, Magical Marketplace in Hollywood in 1995 and operated it until 2001 when she sold it to her longtime uh, store managers. Which is Rachel the store Trude. in that movie. that She bought that store yes. from the movie. So just cool little reference yeah. there. Super cool. And Rachel True, however, has been a damn near lifelong student of spirituality and esoteric discourse. Uh, most specifically, she has professionally performed and studied tarot, ultimately releasing a deck and guidebook of her own design. It's a really uh, the pretty. True Heart, yes, yeah, so gorgeous. Um, so even if you're not into like the spirituality of tarot and stuff, just it, go check out the art of it. It's gorgeous. Uh, but it's called the True Heart Initiative. It, sorry, True Heart Intuitive Tarot, um, and it was released on October thirteenth of twenty twenty. She views tarot uh, as a tool for psychological and spiritual introspection, manifestation, and healing. She has attributed finding the script for the craft to her practice and uh, landing the role to crystal work and manifestation. Um, that was pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then as... Uh, back to the film. As Sarah uh, is retreating to the upstairs bathroom, we see her pass a whiteboard with the name Gustav Klimt, uh, who's an artist whose works were denounced for their eroticism. He was also known to have a common theme of the uh, femme fatale, or women who are empowered and strong. It's a kind of cool note. Yeah. Just, just fun little ties to the themes. Um, and then the one last thing that we did really want to talk about uh, with regards to this film is some of the racism that did occur in real life around this film. Because unfortunately, the film's commentary on racism and its negative karma did not translate to the award shows at the time or even planners in 2019, um, convention planners. Uh, Rachel True was excluded from invitations to these award shows um, or these conventions, despite Nev, Feruza, and Robin being invited explicitly as a trio. Like they they excluded Rachel True from a lot of it. Um, oh, and now yeah. she is explicitly, yeah, and unashamedly, yeah, and she is wonderfully vocal about her experiences as a black actress in Hollywood. So definitely check her out on Twitter um, at Rachel True. If you want more details, um, but Rochelle's uh, character was originally written for a white actress as a girl who struggled with bulimia, which we, you can see it kind of translates to them like talking about their weight and stuff like that. Um, but was adapted to address the issues that a black girl would face that a white one couldn't. Uh, Rachel said that she was unsure and suspicious of the change at the time but has since determined that it was an important change and inclusion. Um, we did see that during a 2020 interview, she also added that though the scene was racially charged with the racially charged language rang true to her own experiences, she never had to ask them to change it. Um, the hard R 
seems thankfully to have never been included in the script which thank yeah. god that would have been like right awful absolutely awful yeah um so if you want to get to know uh more about us or the company you can check out uh, jaded phoenix studios link tree um that's l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e for anyone unfamiliar um, as well as my link tree and Mandy's for a comprehensive and frequently updated list of our projects and social medias. Uh, they'll be in the description of this episode, uh, I think pretty much anywhere that you watch us. Um, and in addition to social media, you'll be able to access the JPS Discord, our uh, merch store, my we have coffee merch. and public writing. Yeah, we do have merch. We even have Queers Bay merch. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Mandy's Discord. Uh, and if you're interested in consuming some more witchy horror, uh, make sure to check out the Calculus Academy campaign running on my Twitch channel. Yeah. But uh, with that, I don't think we have anything else to say. So um, you guys have a great rest of whatever time of day this is uh and we'll hopefully uh hear from you soon bye y'all